Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we are going to discuss the letter, if it is indeed a letter. It is a letter. Of First Peter. So we're back to our uh, book overviews, and uh, last week we did a Monday Thursday kind of special wrapping up Easter. And the interesting thing is I've been seeing on Twitter over the last couple of weeks how many people have tweeted about their conversion on Easter, which is something that usually happens in the Catholic Church. I don't know of many evangelical or Protestant churches who save up, you know, conversion, uh, whether it be baptisms or confessions or something like that. Uh The system is different. But I have been, it's been interesting to me to see how many people I have seen on Twitter saying, I became Catholic on Easter. And the reason I think that is interesting is because we typically think that Christianity is on the wane in Mm -hmm. the United States, which statistically it is. Uh First time ever. Church attendance has dropped below 50% in the history of the United States this year. Right. Uh, And typically here in this part of the country, at least, uh, you just don't see as much zeal in kind of the academic part of things or in the establishment part of things with Mm -hmm. Catholicism. That's usually something you see a little bit further east. Right. And uh, the other thing I think is interesting about 1 Peter is, you know, a lot of people think 1 Peter was a baptismal sermon or homily or something that's right. become a letter. It's clearly, it, it clearly, I think it is a letter, even though there's discussion as to whether or not, you know, it started out life as a sermon. And of course, the, became, the biggest problem uh, with it being a baptismal homily is the fact that baptism isn't mentioned. But really, well, you know, it's something you need to know before baptism <laughs> uh, would be the argument, I think. But it made me think, you know, what are the things that you would need to know before you were baptized? What are the things you need to know before becoming a Christian? And First Peter really does hit a lot of those topics. This is a very nice primer into the Christian life. There's a lot of great themes here that are elementary. There are some themes that are really deep. There are a few things about church leadership. I would say this is a well-balanced letter. If you were going to present somebody with a very short, non-Pauline mm-hmm. introduction to Christianity, this would be pretty hard to beat. You know, as uh, not to jump ahead, but the basic outline of this book is just in, in topics. Is the first chapter starts out talking about salvation, then moves on into holiness. Chapter two gets into the idea of election. Uh, moving into chapter three, you see some submission, obedience. Chapter three, four, you see suffering. And so I really agree with you. Those topics are all foundational to the Christian life. And it's very pragmatic. It's not high-flown theology, although there's solid theology in it. It's just down to earth what you can expect from the Christian life and what your challenges will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody listening. This is not possible with every book that we do an overview of, but I, I would encourage it for every book that you can to sit down and read First Peter from start to finish. Right. Just read it in one sitting. It probably only takes about 15 minutes. Read it from start to finish and get that flow that you're describing right. of the way that uh, Peter lays out these truths. Now, Peter is First Peter is a little bit difficult to outline, and you'll see that if you read it straight through. But these themes are really powerful. Mm-hmm. So 
I want to start like we usually do, talking about the background info that's relevant, which sometimes there is relevant info and sometimes there's not. Um, you know, every one of these letters, with few exceptions in the New Testament, if you open a commentary and you start to read it, you're going to get a good discussion about who wrote the letter. And we've talked about this at length before when we've done some of Paul's uh, letters and people question whether or not Paul really wrote these letters. Mm-hmm. There is some significant debate on who wrote First Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something you want to spend any time on? Not terribly, uh, because it's just kind of the fashionable thing to do to doubt the uh, authenticity of the letters, uh, to either ascribe them to a school of followers of Peter or John or Paul, or to make it much, much later and make it synonymous, uh, mm-hmm. pseudonymous. I mean, basically putting Peter's name on it to get your own theology out there. Right. That's more uh, persuasive with the Gnostic writings than mm-hmm. we're trying to masquerade as authentic Christianity. First Peter doesn't need to masquerade as anything because it's very consistent. So you could talk about this on most of the books. The problem I have with this coal, just boiling it down, this is not going to be an academic statement, but having read and studied all this, I would boil it down to this, is it would take compelling evidence for me to overturn what the early church thought. Mm-hmm. And the only evidence you have is textual, mm-hmm. not archaeological, not historical, just this doesn't read like Peter, or gee, this sure sounds like several people wrote. That's pretty thin evidence to overturn. And I would just, that's just my general argument. You really need something a lot more secure than that to overturn the early church. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the case. And I, I would just add, if, if you're looking for these arguments, these arguments don't come up very often mm-hmm. now, but if you're looking for these arguments, the ESV Study Bible has a great intro that basically goes into the five reasons people think that it might not be written by Peter and five refutations right. for the, of those reasons. And I think almost all of them could be solved just by looking at 1 Peter 5.12 by Silvanus. Some people actually dispute whether or not this is Silas. I think most people agree that it is Silas. Yeah. By Silas, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Okay, so Silas writes this. Peter dictates this. Mm-hmm. That solves almost all of your syntactical, lexical yes, it does. Uh, things, which usually drive the authorship question. So right. I'm, I'm, I am comfortable with every book of the New Testament being by who it says it is. But if I were going to pick one that I thought was in doubt, First Peter wouldn't be it. It would not be it for me either. And by the way, that's a neat little connection with Silas, mm-hmm. who was also mentioned in three of Paul's letters traveled with Paul. He was a Roman citizen. Silvanus was his Roman name. And uh, yeah. I just think that's an interesting connection. Yeah, the real, the really interesting question in the background is, how did Peter and Silas get together? Well, let's talk about that for a second. This makes a lot of sense to me in the sense that for various reasons, which I don't know if it's interesting to our listeners, people think first Peter that Peter is a very aware of some of Paul's letters mm-hmm. just because of some things that are said. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he is or he isn't. I don't have a strong opinion on that. Well, because of, a lot of people think that because of the reference in 2 Peter. Right. Assuming and Peter wrote Definitely 2 Peter. Peter. Right. But having said that, that would necessitate, I mean, a little detective work here, so it's not sure, but, and I, I kind of agree with this, that it would necessitate then that First Peter is written later than most of Paul's letters, which would put him in the mid-60s. Now, it has to be before 68, 
because that's when Nero committed suicide, and according to church tradition, which I think is solid, Nero executed Peter. So Peter was executed sometime before 68. He's, so he's probably writing this in the mid-60s. He's either in Rome or in jail. Paul, we know, is also executed by Nero in the latter part of the 60s, and it seems to me that he's also imprisoned, for example, when he's writing 2 Timothy, saying, I expect to die soon. That mm-hmm. would also be in the mid-60s. Silas was a companion of Paul, and Silas is here. I think Peter, Paul, Silas are all in Rome in the mid to late 60s. That's, again, nothing I'm telling you I cannot prove, but it seems very reasonable to me that they all ended up in Rome. Yeah, I think that's the most likely scenario, is some way or another they're all in Rome together. Mm-hmm. Whether we have the Paul's first imprisonment or not, you know, whatever, however you construe that, it seems likely that they all end up there together. Not necessarily in the same place, but in right. the same proximity. Right. So let's open then any historical information or geographical information uh, on this that we should know. Well, I think uh, the biggest point of interest to me is uh, right in verse 1. Verse 1 is interesting for a couple of reasons, but let me take the geography and you can take the Trinity. How's that? Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect or chosen exiles of the dispersion. We'll come back to that. And then he, he starts naming off Roman uh, regions, states, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all in basically modern-day Turkey, mm-hmm. what they would have called Asia Minor. So this is clearly written to a group of Christians in many churches in a pretty good-sized geographic area. Yes. So there is, we know that persecution was particularly virulent and early in Asia Minor. Right. Partly because the emperor cult, in other words, the worship of the Roman emperors, believe it or not, was more fervent in Asia Minor than it was in Italy, where the Roman emperors were. And so he's writing to that region, and it makes a lot of sense of the very practical things he's going to talk about. Mm -hmm. The idea of who are the elect exiles in the dispersion, I'll give you an opinion. First, the typical reference for a Jew to the dispersion is the exile in 586 B.C., going way, way back, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, deported the Jews. Of course, they came back later, but they remained all through what's modern-day Europe. And mm-hmm. they really did get scattered throughout the world in that dispersion, that exile. Right. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about the Christian version of that. For example, remember in Acts, early on when Stephen was stoned, and it says then that the Christians dispersed out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In other words, that was God's, I think, God's impetus for using Stephen's death to get those Christians like, get out there and tell the message. So my opinion is it's sort of the Christian dispersion. Right. What do you think? No, I think that's right. It it raises an interesting question on two fronts, though, because number one, I I do also agree that the most likely reference here is to the dispersion that takes place in Acts. Mm -hmm. So after Stephen's death, Acts is pretty clear. People go all over. The interesting thing, and this is where you can get into some scholarly disputes on this letter, is the dispersion takes place along um, ethnic lines for the most part. So, in fact, I'm getting ready to preach this as we record. I will have preached this when (laughs) when this goes live. 
about that passage in Acts chapter 11, where the people who are going throughout, um, they go to Phoenicia and they go to Antioch. They are preaching the gospel for the first time to Hellenists. And there's a big discussion about what the Hellenists refers to. Are these true Greeks? Are they Asians? You know, in the way, not the way that we would say in the Far East, but in Asia and Greece are different in the mind of a Jew. Right. So, or are they Hellenized Jews? Right. And Jews that speak Greek and follow some of the Greek customs. Right. And so there could have been all these groups in all these places. Right. Uh, The question, though, is what was somebody like Peter doing during this time? Peter, we kind of think, is still in Jerusalem because he's Mm -hmm. there for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Right. But somehow, someway, he's got to get to Asia at some point in order to be able to write this letter. Right. You know, we, we think that he's probably been through this region before. You know, that's why, that seems that's why he likely. writes this letter. The other connection I wanted to make is this region is really big. This is a huge region. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia is like everywhere west of Jerusalem, if you go north, mm-hmm. and everywhere east of, you know, the middle of Greece. It's a right. huge area. Right. But it's also the area of the letters in Revelation. This is right. the exact same group of churches. And likely, uh, you know, if this is written before the letters in Revelation, which there's a lot of dispute on that, but let's say it's written before then, uh, these churches have a lot of Christian heritage that has they come do. their way. They've got right. Paul's letters and Paul's journeys. They've got these letters from Jesus to the seven churches, which form a little route that you would take through right. Asia. And then you have this. Which is another letter. Right. Uh, you, Timothy is probably there in Ephesus at some point, which is right in the middle of these cities. It's the biggest city in that area. So anyway, it, this is a very rich region of Christian history, and that's exactly where Peter is writing to. This is a place that Silas would have been. So uh, writing this together at separate times probably, they would have both visited these towns. So if we dive into the text a little bit, you, you point out these this intro of Peter's letter is very interesting. Very There's beautiful. the address, and then there is... Uh, oh, the other thing I was going to point out is James starts out his letter the exact same way. He does, that's right. He says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Right. Uh, making it even a more overt reference to the exile. Right. Um, you know, that's probably something that was a custom in the Jerusalem church. They talked that way. But here, Peter begins with this great Trinitarian opening. The, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. You know, I just want to make one comment on this. I'd love to know what you think about this. Sometimes you hear people say, the Trinity is not in the New Testament. Right. You know, Trinity is not a biblical doctrine. Well, the word Trinity is not in the New Testament. Right. The concept is everywhere in the New Testament. Absolutely. And I think what this shows us, and there's several other places, you know, 1 John is this way as well. There are a lot of places where you can tell that early, early on in the church, these people were accustomed to speaking of God in three persons. Yes. They were already accustomed to thinking in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that's what Peter's doing here. Not necessarily as an overt theological point, but just in the way that he conceives of the work of God in Christians. He conceives of the work of God in Christians in a triune way. 
God the Father foreknowing, the Spirit sanctifying, making holy, bringing about change, and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. It's just a way I think that they had developed their thinking, showing that this doctrine, whether it was formally defined at this point or not, is very well defined in terms of the parlance of the early church. The way they thought and the way they spoke is very Trinitarian. That's a great uh, inference to make from this. Of course, you know, think of Jesus and John speaking of the Father sending a comforter. I mean, the Trinity is is not uh, an add-on doctrine, but you raise a good point. Here in the middle of the 60s, certainly earlier, you see this common way of thinking. Okay, Cole, see if if you like this, uh, at least from a homiletic point of view, if not exegetical. I think this is a study in prepositions. So here's how this sentence reads if you just leave all those regions out. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So it seems to me that your election, the source of that, is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's Mm -hmm. something God did. And then the making holy, which is what sanctification means, is in the sanctification of the Spirit, which is a very broad Greek preposition, but the idea of this is where you are is in the sanctification process. That is the part of the of your election. You know, election being more than an event. The source is God, the process is sanctification, and then the purpose for, the purpose of obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Mm-hmm. And I just think there's a beautiful little picture there in those prepositions. I think so too. Yeah, you get a, a great picture here. Kata, Ain, and Ace all right. used together in this, you know, there, you can get really carried away with these, but there is some substance a lot of times to the way and the directional um, right. sense of the way that these words all work together. And yeah, I think that'll preach. That's my thought on it. I'm just helping you out with this next sermon. Yeah. By the way, have we mentioned on this podcast yet that you're the senior pastor at Carlton Landing Community Church? I don't think we mentioned it. Well, it has now been mentioned. And here's my question for you. When will sermons at Carlton Landing Community Church be online? Is that one of your top? That is one of my top. That's one of my top priorities. So hopefully we'll get that done soon. Um, Maybe in in maybe sometime this summer we'll get that up and running. Um, surely when we move into our new building, we'll, we'll have that working, which will be in June. So very exciting. And, uh, like I said, I will have preached my second sermon there by the time this comes out on Acts chapter 11. Awesome. So he begins this letter with a typical opening in one sense and a very atypical opening in the other. It's very typical for letters like this. You see this in Paul. He does it differently with a prayer, but it's very... It's very typical to do an opening that references or is directed to God, whether through a prayer like Paul typically does, or here, this is more of a doxology format, or, right. or just a exhortation of praise. Blessed be God, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's this beautiful passage, he causes us to be born again to a living hope. This is a really strong start to the letter. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, and then through chapter one, he begins to introduce the themes. He doesn't have right. quite, he doesn't have quite the letter writing acumen that Paul does. Right. And I don't know if we blame this on Silas or Peter, but it doesn't have the same introduction and clear distinction in the body 
that Paul's does. It actually has a, a little bit of a perforated uh, introduction of these themes to where scholars disagree as to where the body of the letter starts mm-hmm. and where the introduction ends. But he gets into the themes pretty quickly. Well, and one thing we have to remember is we're seeing this written down, and so we tend to make the assumption this is a document. This is dictated, and so it's typically going to be verbal. It's like a sermon. And so think about the difference between, oh, say a Tim Keller sermon and, you know, pick a, another fiery preacher. If, you, you know, if you've listened to a, a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon before, and, you, and if you wrote them down, they might look like this, mm-hmm. the difference between a Paul and a Peter because of their preaching style. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're really seeing here. So what are some of the themes in First Peter? You know, as I flip through here, uh, you get this idea of salvation. You know, he follows that on through, like uh, verse 10 of chapter 1 concerning this salvation, etc. And then he turns in verse 13, Therefore, because of this salvation, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded, verse 14, as obedient children. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So you get this sense of obedience to God springing from your salvation. Notice how it's placed after the salvation, not mm-hmm. before. And so you get this sense of uh, obedience and uh, holiness. And then you're going to get submission in chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Honor everyone. Honor the emperor. You know, you get this idea of obedience flowing from that. And right relationships flow out of that. Uh, then you move into suffering. So I'll kind of stop there if you have something you want to say. But as I look at it, the themes move along very nicely. Salvation, holiness, obedience, and submission. And then a warning. Suffering is part of this process mm-hmm. of submitting. It actually flows quite nicely if you think about the topics. Yeah, I think the two dominant themes of the book are suffering and holiness. Mm-hmm. And the effect that they have on one another. So suffering and holiness are both linked in First Peter, as they are in some of Paul's letters. Um, Christ's suffering specifically is exemplary in First Peter, in the sense that we are supposed to suffer because he suffered. Um, you know, this, this obviously makes sense with Peter as an eyewitness. We see this in the Gospels, where Jesus says, anybody that wants to follow me is going to be persecuted. Right. Anybody that wants to follow me is going to suffer. If a, te- a, a servant is no greater than their master. So you get... Peter's take on this, suffering as a Christian is part of holiness, right? So we see these two themes intermingled through the almost the entire book. Um, but what I wanted to kick over to you is this is a different kind of suffering than you see in a lot of the other letters. What kind of suffering do you think he's talking about? Uh, that's a good question. You get the idea of, historically speaking, that they're beginning, the Christians are beginning to be outcasts in Asia Minor. In other words, they're noticeable. They know who they are by the 60s. You know, Nero's going to burn down Rome and blame the Christians, for example. So people now realize, oh, these aren't just your average Jews. It's not just some sect of the Jews. So they get to be known for who they are. And uh, as he goes through speaking about suffering in chapter 3, suffering for righteousness' sake, and the idea of their conduct, that they will suffer for their conduct. And he warns them, 
don't suffer for unwholesome conduct, but suffer for doing good. Mm-hmm. So I think it has to do, my, my first take on this is that it has to do because they are now starting to stand out. Their conduct yeah. will inevitably bring them into contrast, if you will, with the secular mores. Yeah, I, there's, there are a lot of indicators in this letter that their suffering is more social ostracism than it right. is physical suffering. So one of the key places would be in chapter 4, uh, in the opening paragraph, you see the juxtaposition of suffering with putting sin to death. That's a little bit different than, than uh, the kind of perseverance that we see in Paul. Here we see, you know, as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There, there is a, there's an undercurrent throughout this whole letter that suffering as a Christian means not doing what other people are doing. And right. uh, having to pay the consequences for it. There's a nice little progression. If you look at verses chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, let me just paraphrase. The Gentiles, the non-believers, living in sensuality and passions and orgies and lawless idolatry. And then verse 4, with respect to these things, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same kinds of things and they malign you. Mm-hmm. So you, I think you're absolutely right, Cole. And now I'm going to fast forward 30 years. And let's assume that the book of Revelation is written about 95. So 30 years later, you're going to see letters to the churches in this area. And they are now starting to experience physical persecution. And they are in the middle of huge economic persecution. Mm -hmm. The social ostracism has turned hostile. And the Christians can't get jobs. And the Christians, you know, are are outcast. So you kind of see that trajectory of the persecution. It begins with social ostracism. It ends with them being put to death. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. here has taken, it's going to take about 30, 40 years for that to go. Right. You know, what's interesting is the persecution that you see early in the church is typically from the Jews. Mm-hmm. Now you get Peter and John put in prison by the authorities and told, right. you know, don't speak anymore. You see Paul sometimes causing such a scene but usually it's the Jewish opposition with Paul right. that causes the scene and then they get arrested. This is a really different kind of opposition, right? This, th- these are no, no longer, for lack of a better word, intramural disputes between the Jews and the Christians. Right. These are, you are not abiding by our social order. Mm-hmm. You are not assenting to the things that we tell you to assent to. You are not participating in civic life the way we want you to. So we will force you out of the public square, uh, especially later on. You cannot hold certain jobs. You cannot be involved in certain parts right. of society. Now, the interesting thing, too, about that is Christians end up taking over the Roman Empire because of their social ostracism 200 years later. Right. So all of this comes full circle in some ways. And I don't know that that was the greatest thing that ever happened to the church. I agree. But it starts out with them being put down, cast aside, talked badly about then they get killed then they get banished and ultimately they take over the roman empire yeah amazing story you know people i'm sure everybody listening to this right now is is you know just the blinding flash of the obvious there are so many parallels to today Mm -hmm. i think christians in america for example today feel this social ostracism 
They are afraid that it will turn into economic, which it is. You can lose your job today for saying the wrong thing, mm-hmm. saying something that's Orthodox Christianity. You're mm-hmm. beginning to see that, and it will yeah. get worse. And it will end with imprisonment and violence. People are suspecting, hey, we're going to go through this pattern again. And I think this book is powerful in that sense because here's, here's the dilemma that they faced. And this explains a little bit why Peter talks about holiness, in my view. When you are just a human being and you are being pressed for being different, there is huge incentive to go along, get along. Mm-hmm. And that is, well, you know, maybe we don't want to stand out so much. And we think of that today. We realize we're on the cusp of that. Oh, my goodness. Do I really want to stand up for this and, and, and basically have these things happen? They were thinking the same things. And so Peter then moves right from that into do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, look, I know you have a choice to make. You can compromise and get out of this pressure or you can stay the course to pursue the holiness of God in your conduct. And, you know, I think we face those same choices that they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he brings back a lot of the words of Jesus that are easy to forget in verse 14 of chapter four. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Um, You know, we typically forget the last beatitude, the last part of that opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Um, And people speak wrongly about you for my sake. That is a pretty regular part of the Christian experience through history, even if it's not something new for us. Or even if it is something new for us, it probably won't be for long. And, you know, it's easy to go off into the doomsday kind of things. And, and of course, we don't look for persecution, but we should be ready when the time comes. And, uh, you know, Peter gives some great encouragement here for those who are suffering. My favorite example of this is in chapter 5. Starting in verse 6, this is just a beautiful passage. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's exactly what people who are suffering need to hear. That's exactly right. You know, I was listening to a sermon a couple of days ago by John Piper, and the title of the sermon was, Doing the Wrong Thing Will Never Ruin Your Life. And it was a sermon, the sermon is actually about abortion. It was a really interesting application. And his point essentially was, as Christians, we get so much pressure to think pragmatically about our lives. And he said, you know, when when did we forget that part of the whole thing of Christianity is that death has now been taken off the table as a bargaining chip? Mm -hmm. You know, so doing the wrong thing will never ruin your life, not just because Uh, It won't ruin your eternity. I mean, I think we can go further than that and say, even if your life is absolutely miserable by human standards, God promises that his presence and his spirit and and the power that comes through knowing him and obeying him uh, is better than living a life of rebellion and sin, as, as temporarily pleasurable as that might be. Mm -hmm. But the greater point, and the point that Peter is making here is, 
if you suffer now, there is an end to your suffering, and there is a moment where God, at the right time, will exalt you, restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, whether that's before or after you die here on earth. And I think that that's really the most powerful antidote to cultural compromise is we have gotten very comfortable making pragmatic arguments. Um, you know, well, this you know this may be a gray area, but it certainly will make life easier. Right. That's not really a very biblical way of arguing because the biblical way of arguing always privileges the fact that being obedient to God is ultimately better than whatever kind of pleasure you could have gotten from disobedience. And that's why Peter is able to say here, humble yourselves, wait, cast your anxieties on him, and resist the devil. Do not give in to sin mm-hmm. because at the right time, God will exalt you. And it's not prosperity theology to say that we that we do believe that God will reward obedience. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jesus is going to equate obedience to him and loving him. First John, John's going to talk about, don't tell me you love Jesus if you're disobedient to Jesus. And so that, that relational thing we think of as love and obedience is, is all the same part of that. Mm-hmm. I think that the other way around, it really has a very small God. Yeah. So if you think that, you know, given the choice of doing what you know God has called you to do, but then thinking, well, this is extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm really implicitly assumes that, number one, God didn't see this coming. You know, when right. he wrote all this in the Bible, he didn't see your situation coming. I mean, if he would have known how desperate that would have been, then maybe he would have changed some things. And I, I don't say that to be callous. I just mean it, implicitly it's kind of assuming that this situation is different than all the others. And then second, it, it kind of uh, it, it demeans God's plans a little bit because there's a lot of examples in the Bible of God making good on his promise to bring good out of evil, out of suffering, Mm -hmm. even if it isn't the way that we would do it. But then we find ourselves on the precipice of suffering, and we think there's no way he can bring as much good as I could just get for myself right now by actually just not doing the right thing. Uh And I, I think that's the whole social ostracism thing in Peter is suffering and holiness go together. Right. You are going to suffer if you want to be holy. But your suffering actually prepares the glory that comes through being a holy sufferer, right? Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus did. He was killed. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted. That's every Christian life in some way or another is that way. And that's really what Peter is capturing in this letter. Absolutely. And that leads to maybe one final theme we haven't really talked about in Peter is this idea of being a social outcast pursuing God rather than the pragmatic uh, compromises, if you will, makes you feel like you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And Peter is known for this idea of being, for example, in verse one, he says, you are the elect in the dispersion, meaning you've been dispersed to nations that are not your home. And then in 2.11 is kind of the famous passage he speaks about us. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, you don't really belong here. This isn't your permanent home. And would you say that there's a sense of uh, that that is a very natural way for us to feel is the fact that we are set apart mm-hmm. will make us feel as though we're aliens in this culture and that that's actually a normal thing. 
That is a normal thing. And I think for a long time, we've been able to have both. And there's nothing really wrong with that other than the fact that it lulls you into believing that that's the experience of every Christian or that that's going to be your experience for your whole life. So to be Christian and to be socially acceptable is good, but not guaranteed. And in fact, most Christians for the whole layout of history have not enjoyed that privilege. So expecting to be in the mainstream and be a biblical Christian is not a realistic expectation. Even if in this little cul-de-sac of history in America, it has been a reasonable expectation. Maybe in the future, it may not be. It certainly looks a little bit bleak. But what you know, that wouldn't have ever occurred to Peter that Christians would be the norm. You know, that right. people following Christ would be socially acceptable, that it would actually be good for your social status to say, I go to church, I worship Jesus Christ. That would not have crossed his mind other than prophetically, maybe. Right. But, uh, you know, for us, this world is not our home is kind of how you hear it said a lot. It's not an escapist type thing of we're just waiting for heaven. Right. It's that, you know, when Paul at the end of Second Timothy says, Everybody abandoned me. In my first trial, no one stood by me, but the Lord strengthened me. It's trading one norm for the other. Are you the norm in the kingdom of God, or are you in the norm in society? And you should be in the norm in the kingdom of God no matter what. And if you happen to be in the norm in society, that's a bonus. And in fact, you know, there are warning passages about that as well, but we consider that a bonus. And Peter's saying, hey, look, that may not be the case. Right. In fact, I love your phrase, we have basically, and this is something we'll have to explore on another podcast, because I think this attitude is the source of a lot of the problems in the church today, Uh, many problems in the church today. We live in an historical cul-de-sac. In other words, what we grew up in, in America, in this tiny little bubble of history, and it is a tiny bubble of history, is abnormal. We, of course, growing up in it, think it is normal and it should continue. No one else in all of Christian history thinks this is normal. And if we could change our mindset from, wow, what we've experienced is normal to abnormal, we would see the future not with fear. We'd say, oh, finally, things are getting back to the way Jesus told us they would. Yeah, I, I want to add two points to this because I think it's easy to go off the rails in in either direction off of this. The first one is so saying that we are in the world, not of the world, is another way to, is another way to put it. To say mm-hmm. that we are aliens and strangers in the world can lead us to be very hostile to the world, and not just the world, but the people in the world. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly people who are hostile towards Christians, and there are people that you know are legitimate enemies. The Bible doesn't pretend that you don't have enemies. It just tells you what to do with your enemies, which is to love them, to serve them. You can pray for vengeance if you want to um, with those imprecatory psalms. You can pray those (laughs) on your enemies, but you have to reserve judgment for God, and you have to pray and bless your enemies. And so I think one of the temptations of being socially ostracized is to turn everything into a competitive culture war of some kind or another, Right. which when you... When you do that, you depersonalize the interactions you have with other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's biblically available to us. I think what we have to do is we have to resist the pull of a godless world on our own consciences Mm -hmm. and on our own behavior. But we have to remember that we actually have to love the people that we are around. 
not just the Christians, the people that may be persecuting us. We're called to love those people. The other thing, though, is uh, that we, we don't have to get this martyr complex before the time comes either. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that kind of react to this like, okay, then we should invite suffering because mm-hmm. that's the only way to be holy. It's not the only way to be holy. The only way to be holy is to follow Christ and to listen to the Spirit's work in your life. And that can happen in prosperity. It can happen in persecution. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we don't resist or we don't, um, you know, for no reason just forfeit the rights and privileges and things that we do have. But we also shouldn't take for granted that this is the way life is always going to be. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.